I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. Before I dive into the stuff that I've been planning to talk about on this episode, I want to share with you a portion of an email exchange I had with a listener who reached out to me in response to my last episode. And by the way, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, that's episode 10, my interview with Allison Ausved, where we discuss exposure therapy for trauma and anti-exposure bias among therapists. I would suggest you go ahead and go back and listen to that episode first before you listen to this one. It's probably going to make a little bit more sense if you do. So the reason I want to share some of this email I received with you as well as a bit of my response is that I think it really helps deepen the context, not only of what Allison and I talked about in episode 10, but that it also deepens the context of where I'm coming from and what I'm trying to do on this podcast as a whole. So Steph, who is a therapist in Minnesota, which is exciting to me because it's far away, yes, I know how the internet works, don't at me. Steph in Minnesota writes in part, I'm curious Ari trauma treatment stuff because I have been learning a ton with sensory motor and polyvagal theories and it has been really helpful for lots of people, including myself, which is always a fun side effect. I totally agree that it's bizarre when people just decide flat out that one kind of trauma treatment is 100% bad and theirs is 100% good. I'm wondering if this next thought is coming from any defensiveness inside myself, but as I listened to your most recent podcast, it did sort of feel like just doing that to the other theoretical orientation, resourcing, etc. I think both definitely have value and have a place, and I wonder if you think that too, or if you feel like not processing the trauma in a narrative way is a red flag for treatment. I don't feel defensive, but like I said before, it's totally possible that's somewhere in me impacting how I received the podcast, haha. I'm now very interested in getting trained in this kind of trauma work as well, so I have multiple ways to meet clients with what makes sense for them. I guess after writing this, I'm realizing that after the podcast intro, I hope to hear a more open, informative take on PE, that's prolonged exposure instead of a still very informative justification for why the way you and Allison do it is actually the right way. And here is part of the response I wrote to Steph. To me, the episode wasn't totally about exposure therapy as such, but a rebuttal to what Allison and I see as anti-exposure bias in the trauma therapy sphere. So in that sense, a justification of exposure-based trauma therapy is exactly what it was supposed to be. Here's where I start to slice things a bit thinly. Do I think that modalities that employ exposure using the client's trauma narrative are the gold standard of trauma therapy? Yes. I think there is ample reason to believe that these modalities for most people offer the best chance for resolution of most trauma-related symptoms. I think it's also important to add that caveat that, from my perspective, the gold standard of treatment doesn't mean we are achieving 100% permanent symptom resolution or a significant positive outcome for 100% of people who receive the treatment. Therapy just isn't there yet or even close, and I doubt a 100% cure rate, if you want to put it in those terms, is even possible given the level of complexity and ambiguity in the kind of work we do. But perhaps to put it more simply, if a beginning therapist asked me, 
if I could only train in a single trauma therapy modality, what should I choose? I would recommend an exposure-based modality that utilized the trauma narrative. But do I think that trauma therapy that doesn't utilize the narrative is a red flag? No. To me, a red flag for therapy is something that indicates the therapist or the course of treatment is likely to be dangerous, harmful, or in some way actively detrimental to the client. And I definitely don't believe that's the case. In fact, I see a lot of benefits from many of these modalities. I'm thinking of things like somatic experiencing, sensory motor psychotherapy, etc. I see potential benefits there, absolutely, particularly in the areas of improving capacity for emotional regulation, interoception, and effective introspection, all of which, of course, are often heavily impacted by traumatic experiences. People very much can and do have fantastic therapeutic experiences within these modalities. My concern, though, is that many people may be missing out on some of the potential transformative impact of trauma therapy when they don't have access to exposure-based methods that do utilize the narrative. And because of anti-exposure bias, that access is becoming more and more limited. My experience since I began using clients' trauma narratives in a more structured way is that I'm catching a lot of important therapeutic targets that I and my clients would have missed if we were bypassing the narrative. Often catching those targets has been crucial to the trajectory of the therapy. I'm thinking in particular of a few clients who had tried multiple other forms of trauma therapy and had little effect only to have transformational experiences when working with their narratives. And lots of therapists have a few stories like that. The person who has tried everything and then this one modality finally hits. So I don't want to make too much of it. And I certainly don't want to misuse those cases as evidence that no other forms of trauma therapy are effective. That's clearly not the case. But when we do have cases like that, I think it's worth comparing notes and saying what made the difference here? What were the essential elements? And over and over again, I see that using the narrative is very important. So that's the needle I'm really trying to thread with the show overall. I want us to be able to take a strong stand saying, yes, I do think that trauma therapy should generally utilize the client's narrative or the opposite. I don't think using the narrative is important and you'll find plenty of people with that perspective. And I want us to be able to do that and to say that we're having a disagreement based on theoretical orientation. And there may be evidence for or against whatever opinion, but that we can have that debate without calling each other's stance a red flag or that we are causing harm to clients with our take on the work or violating ethics or whatever. That's the end of that excerpt of my email to Steph. So Steph, again, thank you for writing in. I really appreciate having the opportunity to broaden some of these dialogues, to include more people's thoughts and more people's voices, wrestling with all of these ideas and the relationship of our ideas to our practices as a wider community of colleagues is a really big part of what I wanna be doing here with the show. And I hope for those of you listening, there was something illuminating or clarifying about Steph's and my conversation. 
Now I am going to shift gears a little bit and get into some of the factors that I think contribute to anti-exposure bias in trauma therapy, meaning a bias from therapists, a bias within our field against trauma treatment methods that use direct exposure and narrative processing of traumatic memories. But first, maybe an important question to ask is, is there an anti-exposure bias in trauma therapy? Clearly, I think so, but I know that not everybody would agree. So let's unpack that question a little bit first. So not only would some people say that there isn't an anti-exposure bias in trauma therapy, some people would say that there is a pro-exposure bias. I'm currently reading Babette Rothschild's most recent book, Revolutionizing Trauma Treatment, Stabilization, Safety, and Nervous System Balance. And the reason I'm reading it is actually because I think it's really important to stay abreast of perspectives within the field that I strongly disagree with. And I have a lot of respect for Babette Rothschild. Her book, The Body Remembers Casebook, was an important influence on me as an emerging clinician and is the book of hers I would most recommend for its portrayal of the many different ways that trauma therapy can look. Babette Rothschild is someone who I would describe based on her written work, I don't know her personally, but I would describe her as a pretty strongly anti-exposure trauma therapist. Not sure she would describe herself that way, but in revolutionizing trauma treatment, she makes it pretty clear that she believes exposure, direct memory processing is rarely necessary for trauma recovery that it's only very conditionally beneficial under very limited circumstances, and also that she believes this kind of memory processing work is very hazardous. There's a chapter about nervous system responses where she, from my read of it, seems to heavily imply that doing exposure work with traumatic memories could actually kill a client by taking them into some kind of physical state of profound shock. I question that, of course. And if I were a beginning clinician reading this book, I would be absolutely terrified and totally put off of the idea of doing exposure therapy for trauma. That's why I would describe Rothschild as an anti-exposure or at least this book as anti-exposure. All that is to say, one of the things that is interesting to me about this book, and particularly how Rothschild introduces her perspective and her approach, is that she expresses that she believes there is a pro-exposure bias in trauma therapy. She talks about how from her point of view, everyone seems to think that you have to revisit traumatic memories in order to resolve the effects of trauma and how dangerous she thinks that is, and how she's sort of on a mission to demonstrate that it's not true, and how trauma recovery doesn't need to focus on handling traumatic memories and so forth. So not only do we have opposing views on the utility and safety of exposure in trauma work, we also have opposing views on what the prevailing view is, right? We both see the opposing viewpoint to our own as being the prevailing view. Now, this is a thing that happens sometimes. When there's considerable controversy around something and we feel our viewpoint is being repeatedly and vigorously challenged, it's easy to feel like the minority even if we aren't. So maybe of the two of us, me and Babette Rothschild, maybe one of us is doing that, making that cognitive error, feeling like a minority would really we hold a majority or at least not a minority opinion. 
But what I actually think, as I alluded to in my interview with Allison, what I actually think is that more likely this is a generational difference. Rothschild started practicing therapy in the 70s. So trauma therapy was barely a thing back then, to be honest. Therapy was young. It's still young, but it was younger 50 years ago. Trauma therapy, really young. If you asked most people in the 70s about trauma, if they even knew about the concept of psychological trauma, they would nearly uniformly associate it only with combat veterans. And that's another reason why I have respect for Rothschild, by the way. She has been a pioneer in this part of our field. Point is, we are two different generations of therapists. I started practicing 40 years after she started. The landscape of trauma treatment has changed massively in that time. EMDR was developed in the mid 80s, didn't start gaining much prevalence until at least the mid 90s. Prolonged exposure therapy, which Allison from my last episode practices, was in the process of being developed around that same time period. And those emerging treatments for trauma that were some of the first that became very popular as our understanding of trauma was also changing rapidly and becoming more accessible to people outside the field, those were exposure-based treatments. So for a therapist of that generation who was working in the field as all of that unfolded, it's probably very true for her that she tends to encounter a lot of pro-exposure clinicians. I would guess that most trauma therapists of Rothschild's generation are working with exposure-based modalities, where they believe, like I do, in the importance of working directly with traumatic memories. So fast forward to me, going to grad school in 2012 and having my first decade of work in the field be in that decade of, what are we calling it, the 2010s, the teens? That sounds weird. Anyway, I'm 40, so I think it would be a little bit of a stretch now to call myself a young therapist. I just Googled it here and the internet seems to think that the average age of an American therapist is somewhere in their early to mid 40s. So that's a little existential crisis about aging that I can go home and have later, but I'm kind of right on the edge of the middle there. My cohort of the therapists who are roughly my peers, that cohort looks very different, I'm willing to bet, in many ways than Rothschild's cohort. And I think that probably accounts for a lot of the difference in what we're seeing around this perspective on exposure, that she's encountering all these therapists in her cohort of peers saying, no, 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 you have to work directly with the trauma memories. And I'm encountering all these therapists in my cohort of peers uh, and younger saying, don't do that, do nervous system regulation and all those things. So she would probably be thrilled to hear of this change. I wonder if anyone has told her because it's probably in part due to her influence. Um, but of course, I am dismayed. So that brings me back around to why are we here now? Besides the influence of anti-exposure thought leaders in the field, why this pendulum swing? Well, for one thing, maybe there's an inevitability to it. There are a lot of pendulum swings in psychology. It's biomedical versus psychosocial, you know, cognitive versus somatic, directive versus client-led. It's certainly not unheard of that this field has these deep divides and the majority opinion swings from one pole to the other. And when we're looking at why, why does that happen that we go back and forth in that way, I have to think there's something to it that I alluded to in my email back to Steph that has to do with the chronic unavoidable ambiguity of this work. 
I think a lot of us come to this work with this incredible belief in human potential and this desire to find the key, the therapeutic key to unlocking that potential. And when we have failures, when clients don't improve as much as we hope they will, when they don't improve at all, we often keep looking what would have been the key for that client. What's the right key? And I think that desire to find the ultimate key to unlocking human potential can be the driver of pushing therapists to the next big thing. This next modality is going to be the one missing piece or this element of a modality that has fallen out of favor. We need to bring that back. That's the missing piece if we just add it back in. And the reality is even the most refined, well-executed exposure therapy with the most experienced, charismatic therapist, that's not going to work for everybody. Nothing works for everybody. So I can easily see how just the fact of that alone can shift a cohort of clinicians away from one thing that doesn't work for everybody to the next thing that doesn't work for everybody. And it goes on like that. Well, that feels a little fatalistic, but that's okay. That's okay. There are other factors I think we can get a little bit more of a handle on. We don't have to just throw up our hands and say it's the zeitgeist. Let's go back to something Allison and I discussed last episode, which is the fear that working with a client's traumatic memories is going to re-traumatize them. I quibbled last time over that term re-traumatization and whether it actually makes sense or is possible, but I understand that when people use that word, they are at least generally alluding to some kind of triggering, very painful and unproductively painful negative experience when trying to work with their traumatic memories. And I've been thinking these past couple of weeks more about what the contributing factors could be to those occasions when somebody does have a bad experience with exposure in the context of trauma therapy. Do I think that this happens as often as the anti-exposure folks claim? No. Do I think it's as prevalent or as dangerous to have a significantly negative experience with exposure as many of them claim it is? No. But it would be dismissive and frankly counterfactual to claim that clients never have these kinds of negative experiences. And I think perhaps better than simply rolling my eyes when people beat that drum of quote unquote re-traumatization is examining the factors that might contribute to someone having one of these negative experiences. So one thing I mentioned around this when I was talking to Allison is that I think there is a strong possibility that in many of these cases, there has been some kind of significant therapeutic rupture between the therapist and client. One of the few things that there is near universal agreement about among therapists is the primacy of the therapeutic relationship. If we are healing in the context of a relationship, that relationship needs to be strong. That can look all kinds of ways, but there needs to be trust there. And if you're doing something as vulnerable as trauma exposure work, having a therapeutic rupture at that time or around that process could absolutely lead to a significant negative experience. The other thing I wonder about that's very much related to the functioning of the therapeutic relationship is the client's buy-in to the process. We know from the common factors research, right? The research on the factors that effective therapy across modalities has in common. That the client's buy-in to the therapeutic process that the therapist is selling is very important. I think sometimes we feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about it in this way. We like to feel like we're just doing psychoeducation. We're just telling clients the truth, right? But no, I mean, 
I certainly hope we are all telling our clients the truth as we know it and believe it. But what we are really doing when we explain to them our perspective on their problem and what will help them with it is we are selling them on our worldview, our view on human behavior. And to take advantage of this common factor, which seems to be an important one, we have to be persuasive. It's not wrong to work on persuading your client of the accuracy of your case conceptualization and the effectiveness of your intervention. That's a feature of therapy. It's not a bug. And it's a very fine line to walk. Because if we are too pushy, if we unintentionally encroach on the client's sense of autonomy, if we don't adequately address any concerns they may have and may or may not be giving voice to, if we feel overly invested in this person being our client and doing this process we believe would really, really help them, and they feel a need to ignore their own uncertainty about it to please us, None of those circumstances are real buy-in. That's not freely given informed consent. And I think these kinds of things that I just described happen a lot between therapist and client. I can think of a couple of cases where in retrospect, I think I was too attached to my own therapeutic agenda that was not aligned with the agenda of the client. And it didn't end catastrophically, but it didn't go particularly well. So I think that if we are trying to prevent a client having a significantly negative experience in therapy, instead of looking to the modality and pointing a finger at the modality, it's probably a good idea to look first at the quality of relationship and the quality of the collaboration that's taking place in that relationship. And attending to the simultaneous need to be persuasive and be a leader in the therapeutic process, while also not losing sight of respect for our client's autonomy and giving them the space to make a free choice about the hard therapeutic work we may be asking them to do. So now I'm going to do some purely anecdotal speculation. So if you have conflicting anecdotal data, please get in touch and tell me about it. I'm very curious. But one of the things I have been mulling over is that the stories I've heard about negative experiences with exposure for trauma actually have not been actually in any case that I can think of about modalities that use direct retelling of the trauma narrative. So that being like what Allison does, prolonged exposure therapy or the modalities I use, narrative exposure therapy in particular and a couple of others, the negative stories I've heard have mostly been about EMDR. EMDR as it's commonly practiced does not use retelling of the trauma narrative. So in its original form, EMDR is an exposure-based therapy, but it's exposure without narrative retelling. And just to be clear, I am not down on EMDR at all. I'm trained in EMDR. I think it has huge healing potential. I've heard more good experiences than bad, I would say, from people who have been clients with EMDR therapists. So none of what I'm about to say is to imply that EMDR is bad. But what I'm wondering as I'm thinking about some of the negative experiences people have described to me, where they've been very overwhelmed by the emotional and somatic content that has come up during the process, where they don't feel like the exposure aspect was therapeutic. It was more just like having a traumatic memory flashback. What I'm wondering is if the fact that in EMDR, the exposure is occurring outside the container of a verbal narrative increases the likelihood that someone will have this kind of negative experience. 
again here we encounter what I think is probably a matter of near universal agreement among therapists who work with trauma that effectively processing traumatic memories, if you choose to do so, means that the client needs to have, in a sense, one foot in and one foot out of the memory. A flashback is not therapeutic. Just as retelling a version of the memory without any emotional connection is also not therapeutic. And we know that when someone is verbally describing something, they have to be somewhat regulated. They are accessing higher brain function to be able to use language in that way. They may be quite distressed, they may be extremely uncomfortable, but when someone is verbally describing a narrative, they can't also be at the same time completely lost in a flashback. That's not the case if someone is sitting, maybe closing their eyes, focusing entirely on their internal world of their memory, even with bilateral stimulation. So my instinct is to think that there is something protective just about the fact that a verbal narrative is involved in some other types of exposure therapy. The other thing is when a client is sharing a story, when a therapist and client are engaging with the client's narrative together, that provides a massively increased number of opportunities to track the client. It gives the therapist more data than simply watching a client who is maybe sitting silently and trying to attune to where they're at and figure it out. There are so many more data points, so many more opportunities to titrate the correct intensity of the processing, to dial it down if necessary, to turn it up if necessary, when you have a narrative to provide a high level of detail and structure. So when I think about these kinds of negative client experiences as being a source of anti-exposure bias in trauma therapy, what I would want skeptical clinicians to know is that in my experience, far from increasing the possibility that your client will have a bad experience with exposure, using the narrative to me gives you so many more opportunities to ensure they have a good experience than you would have without that. So besides this fear of clients having a negative experience, I want to get into one of the factors that I think is a little bit less savory in terms of why we often see clinicians shying away from exposure work and trauma therapy, and particularly exposure therapy that utilizes the narrative. And the thing I think we really need to look at here is therapist collusion with client avoidance. We are not talking nearly enough anymore about avoidance as a core feature of PTSD, which it is. Avoidance is not only a core feature, but it is the driver that maintains post-traumatic symptoms. Avoidance of reminders triggers anything associated with the trauma, and then of course, outsized reactions when those reminders are encountered, which perpetuates the cycle of avoidance, and it goes on and on. So then this presents a dilemma, right? For every single client who enters therapy for PTSD or PTSD adjacent symptoms, every single client. Because on one hand, there is this desire to, you know, go to therapy, address the issue, heal, all of that, which is inherently in opposition to the avoidance behaviors that they are engaging in as part of the post-traumatic response. This means that we as trauma therapists are in a tricky position because if we ally with the client's desire to heal, 
That means we need to, as much as possible, decline to collude with the part of the client that wants to avoid. The avoidance may be completely understandable. It may be an adaptive response to massively adverse, overwhelming circumstances. But to collude with the avoidance, to enable the avoidance, is to collude with the part of the client that is responsible for maintaining their post-traumatic symptoms. So when a therapist reassures a client with active PTSD that, oh, you won't have to tell your trauma story, you won't have to share your memories, and that client feels relief, that is the relief that we all feel when we are avoiding the source of our anxiety. And that relief is the driver of the avoidance anxiety cycle that maintains PTSD. That is not a responsible thing to do as a clinician. That is a barrier to a client's healing. Now, I wanna be clear about what I am not saying. First of all, I'm not saying that if you use non-exposure-based methods to treat trauma symptoms, that simply by doing that, you are colluding with your client's avoidance. And I'm also not saying that if you ever enable your client's avoidance, you are a bad therapist. I probably have enabled a client's avoidance of something, I'm going to say sometime in the last couple of days. It's inevitable that we do this as therapists, and part of the ongoing work of therapy on our side is recognizing and resisting those places where we take the bait and collude with our clients in something they're avoiding. But what I am saying is if you are selling your trauma treatment modality on the basis of it not having an exposure component or on the basis of it not having a narrative retelling component and your clients are feeling relief and are attracted to your modality simply on that basis, most of the time that is not healthy. That is therapist-client collusion. So if you are doing that, I would strongly encourage you to reconsider how you persuade your clients of your worldview and your methods. Even if you keep on doing non-exposure-based treatment until the cows come home, consider how using the lack of exposure as a selling point may ultimately serve to impede your client's healing because it reinforces the cycle of avoidance that drives their PTSD. So yeah, if you're doing that, I think you should stop. The last thing I want to talk about that I think is a huge contributor to anti-exposure bias is the fear that therapists have of vicarious traumatization. And that's very real. Most of us who have been working in the field for a significant length of time have experienced some kind of vicarious trauma in some context or another. And it can be, it isn't always, but it can be very depleting. So there is a lot of fear around what will happen to us if we do experience vicarious trauma and a lot of concern about how to practice in a way that prevents it. And from what I've seen, a lot of the fear of vicarious trauma centers around what will happen if we are directly exposed to our client's traumatic content. There's an idea that perhaps traumatic content is the most likely thing to cause vicarious trauma. So I've seen people selling their modalities to therapists on the basis of limiting therapists' exposure to the client's traumatic memories. When I was in my EMDR training, the trainers used that as a selling point, that you're not going to be engaging with your client's memories directly, and so that will protect you from being vicariously traumatized. 
I've heard people in the internal family systems world, that's a modality that I'm also trained in and do still use. I've heard people making a similar case for that modality being protective against traumatic content. Um, heard similar things about somatic experiencing. This is a very common selling point for trauma treatment modalities that don't engage the client's narrative or only incidentally do so. This is very well-intentioned. I think we all have an intimate knowledge of how hard doing therapy can be on clinicians, and we would like to have an easier time. We would like our supervisees, students, emerging clinicians to have an easier time. This shit is tough. We've talked about this here on the show before, right? How inherently difficult it can be to have this intense intimacy with people suffering day in, day out. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. I've already quoted my teacher, David Schnarch, telling us, if you do this work well, you will be traumatized. It is almost certainly true that if you're working with your client's traumatic memory narratives, you will be making more direct intimate contact with traumatizing material than if you weren't. But what I'd like you to think about is what we are really talking about when we talk about vicarious traumatization. We are not simply talking about that initial moment of vicarious contact with traumatic material. Any more than when we talk about PTSD, we are talking about the simple fact of having initially experienced a traumatic reaction to an event. We're really talking about the way the impact of that experience sets in and impairs us. And as someone who has done my best trauma work in the context of using narratives, I can say, in addition to my teacher's statement, if you do this work well, you will also experience, alongside your client, a level of healing and mastery around trauma that may just surprise you in its power. I learn daily alongside my clients what they and I are capable of confronting. And we know too from the research that the best antidote to the damaging impacts of vicarious traumatization for clinicians is our perception of our efficacy. When we know we are doing effective work, we are much more resilient to the potential negative impact of exposure to traumatic content. And that is also what I want for supervisees, students, emerging clinicians. I want those of you who may be in that stage of your careers now to experience that sense of being able to confront some of the worst of humanity and walk away clear-eyed and triumphant and seeing that you've really helped someone else come through the fire. For those of us who do this kind of work, there's nothing else like that feeling. There truly isn't. I hope that these past couple of episodes have chipped away at a little bit of your anti-exposure bias, if any was lurking, and given you something to chew on about when it comes to how we engage with our clients and maybe even our own traumatic memories. And thanks again to Allison for our interview and to Steph for reaching out and deepening the conversation. Thank you for being here with me on A Therapist Can't Say That. As always, I appreciate your ratings, reviews, follows, and shares. Please do go ahead and share the show with a therapist friend who you know would be excited by the conversations we are having here. As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. I welcome your thoughts, questions, ideas, critiques, musings, and of course your own A Therapist Can't Say That moments. So if you have something you would like to share with me, please get in touch. Shoot me an email or send me a voice note at Reva at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. Talk to you next time.